longevity, health span, cholesterol, and its effects on longevity. So much is going on right now. Right now, we're all in death sentence. We're born and we're going to die. But there are scientists now from across the globe working to save 8 billion plus lives. Matthew is one such person. He's a CEO of Cyclarity. He has 20 plus years in the longevity space. With the complex topics of aging and longevity, how do you go about understanding it all? Well, my answer is let's spend an hour asking an expert to break it all down using what he's working on. If you like this content, want to see more, please like, comment, subscribe. Let's stay curious and learn about Oki's plan to be a billionaire, not in money, but in saving lives. The genes that influence or encourage uh, Alzheimer's. And you said something that was pretty awesome. So I'm just going to leave it there and let you pick up the mic. What 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 is what is that gene? What what is uh, interesting about it? Yeah, so I think probably most of your listeners have heard of the Alzheimer's gene, uh, which is called the ApoE gene. And there's different uh, alleles uh, of the gene. So people say you have the Alzheimer's gene if you have a certain allele of it that predisposes you to Alzheimer's disease. What most people don't realize is that this gene is a cholesterol transport gene. That's its job is it transports cholesterol. So um, the, the connection between, you know, the heart and the brain, or, you know, probably more accurately, the, the arteries in the brain is the, uh, is the lipid connection. And so your brain actually has more cholesterol than any other organ in your body. And, uh, you know, and so cholesterol metabolism and transport is really important to it. But the fact that the most uh, genetically, the most important pathway leading to Alzheimer's disease is a cholesterol transport pathway. And hardly anybody researches that uh, today. And it, it just seems crazy to me. Yeah. I, when you said it, I, I, I mean, I read this stuff. I'm not a PhD or anything, but like this is an interesting field. And I don't hear anyone talking about that. Like they just mentioned, there's a gene, there's a gene, there's a gene. Maybe it's like too complicated to say it, but you've said it very simply that anyone understand it, it affects cholesterol, comes from the heart, and yet no one makes. I wonder um, what you know, like there's like that metformin that I think uh, people mm -hmm. saw had like the effect of making people live longer, or like they had like that um, something yeah. to that effect, if I remember correctly. I wonder mm -hmm. if there's a way to look at the data on people taking like uh, cholesterol medication and it have an effect on Alzheimer's rates. Or, you know, like looking at the data in that way. Yeah, uh, people have done that uh, I, a lot to, to make sure that the, um, that the, you know, the cholesterol lowering drugs that people are taking aren't, you know, uh, accidentally causing uh, other uh, kinds of diseases. Now that we have, you know, a few decades of data on the cholesterol lowering medication, I'm not an expert, uh, you know, from what little I know, it looks like uh, people who are on the cholesterol lowering medications uh, have slightly uh, lower incidences of, uh, of Alzheimer's disease. Uh, but uh, like I said, I'm not an expert. Uh, and um, it, it's not, there's a lot of the connections, the mechanistic connection that, that I just said, that genetic connection, uh, in, you know, in terms of uh, how the, the treatments for the two diseases will intersect in the future, uh, it's, it's not clear yet how that will happen. Uh, but I think I have a hunch that there, uh, there could be a connection there uh, and that there should be. Is there, so like whenever I hear about a gene mutation doing X, Y, and Z, like I think there's 
I was wondering like what would be the theoretical benefit of it. I think like sickle cell anemia came from potentially malaria, like the way it like changes the the the, the red blood cells, like it made it a little harder for uh, malaria to do its work. If I'm remembering like the the, the background on like where that came from, um, mm-hmm. what would be the benefit of having that a gene that um, manipulated cholesterol in that way? Like I know there's no way to like no no like why it would come up, but I'm curious like has anyone thought about like theoretically, what would be the benefit of having it? Well, the the gene, the the ApoE gene, is an essential gene in the in the transport of cholesterol in what's called reverse cholesterol transport, and so it, that's just what it does. It's well understood. Uh, hmm. What the connection is to Alzheimer's disease is what nobody understands. Uh, and, uh, and what I don't understand is why nobody understands this. It's hardly research and it's not, it's not part of, you know, pharma. Uh, it's not part of, you know, there's billions and billions of dollars going into research on, uh, on Alzheimer's disease. It's, it's a horrible disease that, that, that affects a huge percentage of the population. Uh, but like, I would be shocked if, uh, if 0.1% of the, the effort and the money that was going into it went into this, you know, this aspect of lipid transport, it's, it's pretty much completely ignored. Uh, so we, uh, are, have a very small side project to try to investigate this with our drug. Uh, we received a small grant from the National Institute on Aging to investigate this um, phenomenon with our drug uh, uh, based on a hypothesis that we proposed to them that the oxidized cholesterol that we are trying to target in, uh, in diseases of aging uh, as, our, as our first focus is in cardiovascular disease uh, in atherosclerosis, uh, as I'm sure we'll get to. Uh, but you know we have this idea uh, that is supported with with some uh, hints from the literature that the oxidized cholesterol target that we're going after could also be important in uh, in brain uh, and in Alzheimer's disease and perhaps uh, other aspects of neurodegeneration. So uh, it's it's really early uh, early days yet, but uh, we're we're starting to take a look at that uh, as a potential future application for uh, for our technology. Is that like, um, as a, as a scientist who cares so much about having an impact on the world and you're already developing one line to affect aging and help people, um, does it, does it, does it, I don't know, like not feel good, but like, is it, what's the feeling when you, when you learn there might be another application affecting something so fundamental as neurodegenerative diseases? Like, is there any, and like, especially when it's an aspect that no one is researching, you know, like you're already doing something great and it's like, oh, we're already, we're already doing something really interesting and there's this benefit and, oh, it, it might help Alzheimer's. Like <laughs> that is such a consolation prize, you know, like if you could, if it, it has any effect or just understanding it better, like just the downstream effects that are just uh, massive. Um, yeah, I, just, I wonder well, as a scientist what that feels like. Well, it's, it's super exciting. And if, uh, if it all works out, it'll be extraordinarily gratifying. But as a, as a, as a scientist who's been studying aging, uh, for my whole uh, career, and uh, it it just makes sense to me that there's not it's it's we make these really artificial divisions between you, you know you go to see a, a heart doctor when you know there's something wrong with your heart or uh, a brain doctor when there's something wrong with your brain, but the way that that you know molecules and cells behave 
in, in one organ isn't fundamentally different from the way that they behave in a different organ. And aging at the cellular, the biochemical level, uh, the organelle level, they, there's, there's a lot of overlap between different types of cells and different types of organs. So it's, I think that's actually the future. I think that's the, that, that's going to be the norm uh, in future decades that, that something, if you're going to treat a disease of aging, which is most of the important diseases today, you know, if you're talking about neurological disease, uh, if you're talking about cardiovascular disease, you're talking about uh, uh, lung failure, you're talking about liver failure, uh, these are all the, the number one risk factor for all of these is aging. Uh, so you have to look at what is it about aging that causes the diseases of aging. And since that's what we're doing, it's just natural that our drug and uh, everyone else who's developing drugs that are attacking fundamental parts of the aging process are going to impact more than one disease. So it's both a blessing and a curse. It's, it's, um, it's, it's uh, making... Uh, the, the blessing is that, uh, you know, a friend of mine is starting to call this the pipeline in a pill uh, idea for investment that, you know, that a single drug, our drug is not going to be uh, right now is not uh, is not going to be available as a pill, by the way, uh, it's not orally absorbable, uh, but <laughs> just as a, uh, as a, you know, sort of a quip that, you know, the pipeline in a single treatment is that if it's going to affect something fundamental to aging, it's, it's going to have to affect multiple diseases of aging, which could be, you know, a huge uh, boon for, uh, you know, for investment, you know, for the investors at the earlier stages for the, for the drug companies, uh, at the later stages. Uh, and it, you know, uh, it's, it, it's gonna, I, I think it's gonna revolutionize medicine, medicine, uh, and, uh, it, it's, it's just gonna make sense in the future that, uh, that, that one treatment is going to affect multiple diseases. Yeah. It's, well, it's interesting to think that over the last like hundred 50 years. And I'm thinking in terms of like one of our, in, in the 1900s, we had a person die in the white house who got an infection because we didn't have anything to really affect infections. We had, uh, I mean, I think they're like James Tyler or like one of the, like Tyler something, one of our presidents with Tyler on the name, it's like such a forgettable, uh, <laughs> uh, president because he died from like, people think he died from dysentery and Washington died from being over leached. So we, we go from like the course of our nation, uh, from that to such an over-specialization uh, where maybe in the specialization, we're kind of like forgetting to work together inter interdisciplinary, interdisciplinarily. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's really interesting. Like you, you, like the, the, that trend where we, we, we dig deep, but like, like you're saying, the body doesn't have artificial de uh, divisions in that way. Like we're all one, we're, we're a connected unit. Um, even if you can in specialize and better understand it, I think like everyone coming together to work together and seeing like the, all the effects I, I think that would have bigger uh, a bigger impact. Um, when you're when you're doing your research, when you are when you guys are thinking about uh, developing uh, the drug, is it do you have multiple like uh, this is kind of like an obvious yes, but like what's the what's the team make like what's the disciplinary nature of the team to make something like this? Uh, just in terms of like uh, theoretical when you were going into it, and now as you move more to like the practical execution of it, like how's the how's the team? Um, start and then how does it change as you're trying to make sure that the idea is being able to be executed as well, if that makes sense? Yeah, well, and it's it's a good question for, for, for me and our company right now, because we're in the midst of a transition. So uh, to answer your question, you, you know, you want to 
uh, hire, you know, people and build your team around, uh, you know, the different aspects of um, uh, developing, you know, a drug candidate. So, you know, you're going to be at an R&D stage for us. Uh, that meant having a computational chemistry team uh, at the sort of the tip of the uh, of the iceberg or the uh, the pyramid, uh, and uh, having uh, having chemistry team that's at, that's actually working both at the uh, the second stage and at the at the uh, near the last stage. Uh, so the chemistry team both develops the uh, the lead candidates so you know they make the uh, the the pre lead candidates that you test out and then later you come back to them for manufacturing then you have the preclinical team that's going to do work uh, uh, or the IND enabling team uh, that is doing proof of concept work uh, for the uh, discovery uh, work in the lab uh, and then also preclinical. Uh, people internally or, or externally, consultants uh, and uh, you know contract researchers that are doing uh, the various in vitro and in vivo um, safety and metabolism uh, testing that you need to do in order to qualify your your drug for um, for uh, for clinical trials. Uh, you know when you're going to go to a regulatory agency like FDA for uh, for approval. Uh, and you need advisors who can advise you uh, on all the different aspects of, uh, you know, safety and pharmacology and um, uh, and regulatory rules uh, and whatnot. Uh, and then, so coming back to the manufacturing, then once you have your lead drug, uh, you need your your chemistry team that you know now is becoming a manufacturing team uh, that you're going to scale up the the manufacturing. And then after that. Uh, you need your clinical team, which is what we're building now. So we've just hired uh, our uh, new head of uh, clinical operations, uh, who's building out our our clinical team and uh, and heading that up. So we're trans we're in the transition from being a you know a, a discovery and then uh, you know preclinical development and now into being a clinical stage company. So now you know we're hiring more clinical people. That's interesting. And then from from your from your standpoint, I know in some like tech companies, for instance, they have like scrum methodologies and maybe this is like a, a little esoteric, but how do you orchestrate all those different people so that everyone's going in the same direction? Does like the, do like the leaders of each division like meet up and then you guys like get on the same page every quarter or something like that and they keep moving forward? Like that just seems like that's a, that sounds like a really difficult job to keep all those different things in your head. Uh, just, just, you know, cause it's kind of your job to keep everyone going in the same direction, but I'm curious yeah, how do you do that? Um, no, it's a good question. Uh, the, you know, the answer is that we're a really small group internally. And then, mm -hmm. uh, there's sort of a, a, a second orbit of our company that we're mo actually mostly a virtual company, uh, in that, you know, basically most of us are managing, uh, consultants and contractors to do, uh, most of the, uh, most of the, the, the work. Uh, so uh, from that perspective, the, you know, the core team, the, the leadership team, you know, we talk really frequently, we form a lot of, uh, of, uh, of subject specific uh, groups that will meet, uh, like you said, uh, you know, you know, some of them will meet once or twice a week, uh, you know, or every other week or once a month, uh, and, uh, and, and come together and talk from a uh, subject specific uh, perspective, and then we'll have you know full company-wide uh, meetings uh, periodically, just to try to give updates on everything that's going on, so that you know everybody, you know whoever they are, 
uh, in the company is uh, is up to date on on everything else, at least at some level. Maybe not you know the super nitty gritty level, but at some level. Uh, and and I also my my style is that I like to empower the the people who are in charge of um, of any given topic. So if it's a chemistry meeting and I'm at the meeting, I'm not in charge of that meeting. My head of chemistry is in charge of that meeting. And if it's a clinical meeting, uh, you know, I'm not uh, you know uh, a, a physician, uh, so I shouldn't be in charge. And so our you know our new head of clinical is going to be in charge of that meeting, that kind of thing. So. Uh, you know, that's how I like to organize things is on a project uh, basis. So regardless of whether or not, you know, you, uh, you know, I outrank, you know, somebody else or, or they outrank somebody else, if, you know, however, the, whether the project is, is small or huge, whoever is in charge of that project, you know, whether they're a more junior person on the team uh, or a more senior person, whoever is on that project is answering to the person who's in charge of the project. So that's, that's my style of how I like to keep all that straight. That makes sense. And it, it, it makes it easier on you as well. And at the same time, empowers people and gives them a sense of ownership. And that's like the, the best way to get, I mean, who wants to work for someone where all, all, they have no ownership and no, uh, you know, actualization in what they're doing. Um, so that definitely sounds like the the method that would get the best from people. When you're in those meetings, there's, um, I forget the guy who's the CEO of Google, but he said like one of the biggest things he does in a meeting as a CEO is he, he just states the vision a lot. But I'm curious, is there, are there like things that you do um, in the meetings that you tend to do a lot of, like for him, it was, uh, he literally just said like, this is our vision. This is what we're trying to do. Like every meeting so that everyone knew what they were doing. Um, so like there's another person leading the meeting, but like, how do you see yourself? Effect? Like, are there like commonalities that you do a lot? Like, do you have rituals like that? Like, this is our vision that you say those things every time, or is it kind of like, it's too diverse? You know, I think Google is uh, is a slightly larger company than ours. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> uh, you, you know, they, uh, you know, the 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 leadership of a, of a, a really large company like that is probably a bit different from mm -hmm. a company like mine, where you know, even though I, you know, I try to delegate as much as I can uh, to to people who are bigger experts on things than than I am. Um, uh, in a in a small company like ours, I'm still a lot more in the trenches than uh, than the leaders of of enormous companies like that are. But to your point. I, uh, you know, I try to play to our strengths. I try to, you know, when, you know, if we're talking about, you know, some new aspect of, you know, discovery, uh, some new aspect, uh, some, you know, idea, some application for our technology that, you know, we hadn't thought of before, I might bring the conversation back to, you know, is this something that we really have expertise on? Does it have something to do with aging? Does it have something to do with, you know, the way that our technology works, which is this, you know, rather specific, uh, you know, cyclic carbohydrate-based uh, technology. Is this something that we can impact, uh, you know, just because there was a paper on it, does that really mean that it's something that we should go chasing after? Uh, you, you know, let's play to our strengths and, uh, and our core competencies and, uh, you know, and see where uh, we can, uh, you know, add the most value, uh, or or maybe where we should, you know, call in somebody else, or uh, you know, maybe start a collaboration uh, with somebody else who knows more about this than we do. That makes sense. The um, what was the? So you have the route that you're going down right now. What was about um, this drug that made you feel like it was the right one to go with? Like, well, it was less about the. Um, you know, falling in love with 
with this kind of drug, this kind of technology, and and more about uh, trying to find a simple solution to the oxidized cholesterol problem. And I think there, you know, now are other uh, problems, other you know, hydrophobic toxic biomolecules that we can target using our technology, uh, which is what I want to do in the broader you know aging disease space uh, moving forward. Uh, but, you know, I was looking for a simple way that didn't involve a lot of complicated, you know, gene therapies that are, you know, can be difficult to get into clinic or enzyme engineering, uh, which can be both difficult and difficult to get to clinic and difficult to manufacture, uh, you know, and can have all kinds of pitfalls and can be, you know, have regulatory challenges. So uh, the, the way that I sort of conceived of it was, you know, when I was, you know, years ago, I sort of scratching my head about this problem. And I've been thinking about the problem of oxidized cholesterol for actually a couple of decades. Uh, but, uh, you know, when, when I was really scratching my head about this about five years ago, I went back into the literature and, and, and you know, started trying to look for alternative approaches. And I came across these, uh, these kinds of molecules and, uh, you know, found out that in the 80s and 90s, people were studying the cholesterol and other sterile binding properties of these types of molecules. And, uh, and I thought that there, there was an opportunity to come in and try to uh, uh, learn everything that we could about these molecules and then find ways to engineer new ones that could be uh, more, even you know, better, more specific and more potent uh, than the ones that you can find in the chemical catalog today. I think in your talk, you mentioned that um, these oxidized cholesterols that they're, if I remember correctly, you said that they're, they're kind of useless and they're toxic everywhere they go. If I remember my, my side. Yeah. Right. You know, especially the, the type, you know, it's kind of two types of oxidized cholesterol or oxysterol. And I want to distinguish between the good ones and the bad ones, uh, just like good cholesterol and bad cholesterol. There's ones that your body makes on purpose. Uh, and so you don't want to get rid of all of those. Uh, but then there's the non, uh, uh, the ones that happen accidentally as a result of uh, free radical damage. And so free radicals, uh, you know, oxygen free radicals will react with cholesterol randomly. And when they do that, uh, they will overwhelmingly form uh, actually, um, you know, pretty much a single uh, um, particular oxidized cholesterol called seven keto cholesterol that uh, we mostly focus on. Uh, and that one is, as you say, it's, it's just bad. It has no redeeming qualities. It's not something your body doesn't make it on purpose. Uh, it's not something that participates in, uh, in metabolism in any productive way. Your body doesn't have good ways to process it. Uh, once it's inside of a cell in an organ, uh, it basically can't get back out again. So uh, it's, it's a great drug target, in my opinion, for that reason, because there's no lower limit. There's no, you know, with cholesterol, uh, you need it. You need cholesterol to survive right? If you pull too much cholesterol out of a cell, that cell will break apart. It will fall to pieces. Uh, you know, cholesterol helps hold it together. So there's a lower limit to how low you can go on cholesterol, but there's no lower limit on, on this uh, nasty oxidized cholesterol that we're trying to get rid of. So as a drug target, you know, in terms of the on-target effect, the, the, you know, the lower limit that we're aiming for is, you know, zero, just, you know, as low as if I could wave a magic wand and make all of it go away from your body, you, there'd be no downside. You, you'd just feel better. Um, so that, that, that's, you know, it, it makes, it's, it makes my life sort of easier. It's just, there's a bad guy, just get rid of it, uh, is, uh, is the way that we think about it. What, what is it doing? Like, 
when it's in a cell, when it's interacting with the body, what is it doing? So um, the normal job of cholesterol is to sit in the membrane of your cell and help with the physical properties of your cell membrane. And uh, the, you know, and, and so it helps with the, you know, the fluidity uh, uh, the, uh, of, your, uh, of your membrane. Uh, and like I said, if you pull it all out of the cell, the, the membrane will fall apart. Um, with, when the cholesterol gets oxidized, it can still stick in the membrane, but it changes the physical properties of the membrane and it ends up punching holes in the membrane and permeabilizing the membrane. So now stuff can flow in and out that shouldn't uh, be uh, you know, going in or, or, uh, or you know, that you're losing from your cell. And uh, this can create a whole cascade of damage inside of your cell that can create more oxidative stress uh, that can lead to uh, stress inside of the, the cell in other ways, uh, can lead to uh, lysosomal dysfunction and uh, eventually can, you know, it can lead either to cell death or it can lead to a cell, um, you know, turning into kind of a zombie cell that, uh, that stops uh, metabolizing and just kind of keeps growing and, uh, uh, and, and puffing up into something called a, a foam cell that can happen in your, in your arteries, uh, in the plaques. Uh, so those are some of the consequences of what happens when oxidized cholesterol gets into a cell. Um, is the rate of it in our, in our bodies can like consistently increasing over time or what is the rate? Uh, if we assume like a normal diet and whatnot, I don't think, I don't know if diet would work cause it's from free radicals, but, um, uh, how does it, basically like as a population looking at the u.s for instance like what what's the what are the levels i mean i guess anything above zero is still bad <laughs> but yeah. like uh where where do we sit well like a 30 year old 40 year old 50 year old 6 year old like what where do we sit on for the average person we don't know enough about that yet we think mm. it accumulates slowly in in many uh tissue types with age uh especially tissues that don't turn over very well um but uh, we don't know whether it's a linear rate uh, or whether it, uh, it, you know, the rate increases somewhat with age. We do know, or I, I strongly suspect that in some aspects, it, uh, it increases faster with age because we see uh, patients that have been diagnosed with heart failure uh, even compared to people the same age with much higher levels of oxidized cholesterol in their blood cells. Um, so, which is kind of weird and we don't exactly understand why when the main damage that we're worried about in, those, in that disease is damage to the arteries and damage to the heart itself. But um, there's, there's this interesting correlation, uh, kind of super correlation between uh, the oxidized cholesterol building up in their blood cells with, uh, with age, uh, not with age, but with the disease uh, compared to uh, the age matched uh, um, people. Uh, so um, it, 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 it may be more complicated than a, a simple linear increase mm. from, you know, age one through age, you know, 100. That makes sense. Is there, does the body work to get rid of it or is it just there forever? The short answer is it's just there forever. Most of your cells don't have a mechanism for getting rid of it, uh, which is kind of scary. And it's one of these things that uh, it's 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 one of these things where one of these examples of uh, evolution doesn't care about you 
uh, after you've reproduced. So, uh, you know, if you build up a bit of oxidized cholesterol from age, you know, zero to 20, uh, you know, evolutionarily speaking, that's pretty much as much time as, as evolution, maybe 30, that's pretty much as much time as evolution cares about you. And, and after that, uh, th there's, you know, there's not a lot of selection for, for what happens after that. So uh, basically the body did develop a way for you to deal with it uh, if you eat it. Uh, so you can get rid of it if you eat it and you do eat a lot of it, uh, regardless of how healthy of a diet you eat. Uh, um, yeah, well, if you eat a, a diet that has any cholesterol in it, so if you're eating a completely plant-based diet, you're not eating uh, a lot of cholesterol, um, if, if any. Uh, but, uh, you know, but our body, you know, we did evolve a way to do that. Our liver does have enzymes to, uh, to deal with it to a degree, but basically none of the rest of your body does. So if you get some oxidized cholesterol into, you know, your heart, into your arteries, into your brain, into your eyes, it looks like there's no way for your body to get rid of it. So it just, uh, it just gets stuck there. So for, for some context, if you were to look at all, uh, vascular related diseases, uh, uh, cardiovascular related diseases, how big is this in terms of the pie? Like I, I imagine that there's not really a way to like definite in that way, but how big of the different causes of cardiovascular disease does this f fill up? If that makes sense. Well, you know, it's, uh, I, I feel like, um, the, the proof for that is going to be how effective drugs like like ours uh, ends up being in uh, in people uh, as we as we get to that stage. So um, the, the you know the short answer is stay tuned. Uh, <laughs> the longer answer is that the way that we think uh, the the heart of uh, of cardiovascular disease works is that you have a a cell a uh, a macrophage and it gets recruited to a lesion in your artery. And there's some lipid there. There's some uh, there's some dead cells, and it goes. And the job of a macrophage is to eat. Uh, and a macrophage can go, you know, as part of your immune system. It can be recruited to the site of an infection, and it can eat up bacteria. Uh, it eats up dead cells. And when it gets to a, a nascent uh, atherosclerotic plaque, uh, a lesion in your uh, in your vessels in your arteries, it's supposed to eat up that stuff that is there. But it, when it runs into the oxidized cholesterol, that gets into the cell, it gets into the lysosome. The lysosome can't metabolize it. So the, what the uh, macrophage is supposed to do is take the excess cholesterol, uh, use an enzyme to, to tag it for export, and then it gets exported from the cell and sent back into circulation to your liver. And then your liver can decide uh, about recycling that cholesterol. But with the oxidized cholesterol, for some reason, like I was saying before, most of your cells, including your macrophages, don't know how to deal with that. The enzymes don't work on it. So uh, it just sits there and accumulates and it poisons the lysosome. It shuts it down. Eventually, the, the macrophage keeps eating, but it, uh, it can't metabolize uh, what it's eating anymore. Uh, because the lysosome, which is the garbage disposal center of your cells, uh, shuts down. And so then uh, the, the macrophage becomes part of the problem uh, rather than the solution. And so it balloons up into this thing called a foam cell, which becomes uh, a visible part of every uh, mature atherosclerotic plaque 
that uh, that you see in people. Uh, so it's, it's a very predictable sequence of events uh, that happens every time. So that's our model. So uh, we've been able to show in, uh, in, our, uh, in our carefully designed experiments that our drug can uh, either prevent or reverse this, this condition. So we can poison the macrophages with oxidized cholesterol uh, or, and then uh, reverse it. Uh, they, they, um, their lipid levels go back down uh, to something that looks like normal. Uh, they stop looking like these gross puffy foam cells and then they go back to eating again. So they stop eating and then they start eating again. So uh, we, we think and we hope that, uh, you know, yeah, obviously, uh, you know, testing that in theory and testing that in uh, in people are going to be two different things. So, uh, that you know, once again, back to the short answer is wait and see how effective our our drug is uh, when it gets to clinic. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, uh, hopefully, it's a it's a good uh, good result. Um, the okay, so just to clarify, um, how how exactly does your drug uh, affect change on this? Just like I think you like said it in the last. Uh, minute of what you were saying, but I just want to uh, clarify. Um, does it? Yeah. How? How? If you could just. Um, a drug is it, like. Yeah. A drug is like Pac-Man. Uh, it. We designed it. It. Uh, it. It. It opens and shuts on a hinge, uh, yeah. and it's got a big cavity in the middle, uh, and it's the right size and shape to fit a cholesterol-like molecule. And we've engineered it so it has the particular properties that it greatly favors the oxidized cholesterol form over uh, the non-oxidized regular cholesterol form uh, and over other related molecules so that there uh, shouldn't be off-target effects from it on you know, other things that you don't want it bothering in your metabolism. So it comes along and each single molecule of our drug can grab onto one single molecule, one single oxidized cholesterol molecule, and it can uh, grab onto it and then drag it through, um, uh, through your bloodstream and let it get excreted uh, um, by your body naturally. Uh, and to get a, even a little bit more specific is um, it can pull the, the oxidized cholesterol out of your cells or, or out of the plaque um, uh, even a mature atherosclerotic plaque, it, it can go in and suck it out uh, one molecule at a time and float away with it. Do you have to, I guess this will be a part of the clinical trials to see like how much you have to uh, administer to a person to have like the, as big of effect as you want. Um, mm -hmm. And it's not administered orally, so it's like an injection? Yeah, yeah. At, at least at first, uh, it'll be administered as an injection. Uh, maybe later on we'll figure uh, easier ways to to deliver it. Do you see it as like um, like a like if you if you have like a, a massive impact that you'd have to do it like once, um, or is it something that you would do like every couple of months depending on how significant your problem is? Like how do you? I mean, this is like we're like really talking like in the future, but how do you see it in terms of like how? It's a, a good question and it's a difficult yeah. question. We, you know, based on a variety of, of factors, on you know some experiments that we've we've done and that we've tested, uh, it, you know, in animals and um, other similar technologies that that we've seen, uh, that we we hope that it would be a short course of treatments that we're proposing that that it'll be four to eight 
injections over the course of two to eight weeks, and that you would just get this done uh, once every, hopefully only once every five or 10 years, uh, once you start needing it. Uh, you know, that kind of statement really needs to be tested in yeah. people, uh, you know, but because like you were saying earlier, you know, on, on some level, this stuff accumulates over the course of decades. So it's not the kind of thing like with if you have, you know, if your LDL cholesterol is too high, you have to take your cholesterol lowering drug every day. But uh, the oxidized cholesterol builds up slowly over time. So you should only need it in short bursts. Uh, exactly what the, the, you know, you know, how long between uh, courses of treatments we'll be able to go, you know, we'll have to see, you know, hopefully, you know, multiple years, like I said. Um, given the necessity of the drug, are, do you, um, do you guys get any of like that orphan drug type statuses to accelerate yourself through uh, clinical approval? Like, or is it just like a normal process for you? Um, well, Orphan status is awarded on the basis of the disease. Hmm. Uh, it, so uh, on that basis, we would, it's, it's more of a decision of whether that, you know, we want to target orphan diseases or, or regular diseases. Now, the regular diseases that we're mostly interested in, aspects of, um, of atherosclerosis, aspects, you know, maybe someday of Alzheimer's disease, uh, you know, other aspects of, uh, you know, leading to heart failure, other aspects of leading to um, to, you know, there, there's aspects of, uh, of atherosclerosis that are actually, um, that, that, that actually cause most of lung failure, uh, that, uh, and, uh, uh, and other, uh, things like, uh, like that. So none of these are, these are all huge diseases. None of these are orphan yeah. diseases. So, so no, um, it, it's, it, there, there are orphan diseases that hyperaccumulate oxidized cholesterol, and it's something that we're taking a look at. Uh, tentatively, we're not aiming first for uh, orphan disease, um, but in terms of other regulatory pathways, we do have an exciting um, thing going on uh, in that we, uh, we applied for and were awarded a, um, a, a status, a regulatory status in the United Kingdom uh, called uh, ILAP, the Innovative Licensing and Access Pathway. Uh, and so it's, uh, it's a new program uh, in the UK. Uh, and, uh, you know, you could compare it to, uh, to like Fast Track in the US, but you're only eligible for that in the US after, um, uh, after you started clinical trials. Uh, so the nice thing about this is that we could apply for it before we, uh, before we got into clinic. So um, there are programs like that that we can get into that we have gotten into because uh, of how exciting our drug is, our, our technology, how safe it is, um, that uh, we've gotten regulators really excited about uh, what we're doing. Awesome. Um, and where, how much is left to do before you can get clinical trials? I think if I remember, you're going to be in like Q2 of next year, clinical trials, remembering uh, from the talk. Um, hey. So like what's left to do? Yeah, and a Q2, Q, sometime in Q3. Um, what's left to do is mostly uh, finishing some safety testing. Uh, and we've already done a pretty thorough amount of, of safety testing. Uh, and so we're pretty confident of how it's going to work uh, and that uh, we're, we're not going to have any uh, significant barriers there. But 
we, we have to, there's, there's an awful lot of very careful documentation uh, of, uh, of the, the safety that you need to do to prove beyond uh, you know, any reasonable doubt to the regulators how, how safe your drug is. Uh, so uh, we're working on that. And then the other side of it is, uh, is the manufacturing of the clinical trial grade material. And so uh, that is what we have just started uh, the, that sort of final batch or first batch, depending on how you look at it, it's sort of the first of many batches for, uh, for multiple clinical trials and eventually uh, you know, for, for millions of people around the world uh, of that, that grade of material has just started uh, the, uh, you know, the first manufacturing run, uh, which is uh, a, an exciting thing that, uh, that, that I can announce. Uh, that we've we've just started that uh, within the last uh, couple of weeks. That's awesome. Um, I'm gonna. I definitely want to jump into the manufacturing, but a a quick question. Um, what what do you think in your life has prepared you to be effective in this way? You know. Um. You, I mean, was there anything in particular, like maybe like the PhD and being like very focused in, in what you were doing? Um. I think that was just like something from my service level. I could see like having some uh, applicability here. Like, but. From, from your point of view, reflecting on your life, is there anything that prepared you to be doing, I mean, it sounds like, I mean, I, I'm not like living it, but it does sound like you're doing a great job. So I'm just wondering like, what, is there anything in your life that you're drawing from that's allowing you to do such a good job? Well, um, it's, it, it's, it's kind of a dream come true. So I feel like, I feel like I have a, a duty to do everything that I can to make it successful. So, uh, you know, what have I drawn on my PhD training? Yeah, that, I mean, that was fantastic for, uh, for learning how to be a scientist. And I, you know, I already had the focus on, on aging since then. So I have this sort of holistic view of, uh, of aging. Uh, you know, I've gotten to work on many different aspects of aging, which I think gives me a holistic view of, of health and the future of health, because I think, uh, you know, the basic mechanisms of aging are the future of health and the future of medicine. Uh, and then, you know, having run uh, lab, uh, you know, before and, you know, run research groups and, and been in charge of, um, of, of other research groups, uh, you know, previously having that administrative experience, I, it, you know, it gave me enough of that. And it, it, it both gave me enough scientific experience and managerial experience. Uh, and hopefully enough humility to know that when I was starting a drug company, that there was a lot, there, there was a lot more that I didn't know than I did know, and that um, I couldn't learn all of that, all of what needed to be, uh, you know, known about how to make a drug myself fast enough to, you know, for me to be able to micromanage everything. So I hired to my weaknesses instead of my strengths. Uh, so, you know, we built a team of people uh, around us who knew everything about drug development that we don't know, uh, that, you know, that the founders of the, of the company didn't know. So, uh, you know, I feel like that, that attitude was key to, uh, to building a team that could, uh, that could bring this, uh, this drug to, to clinic so quickly. Here we are, it's less than three years. Uh, and, you know, we're only months away from starting our first clinical trial. It's, uh, it's almost unheard of uh, for a company to bring drugs to clinical trial that fast. Uh, and that's, that's part of the secret of how we've done it is, you know, assembling, you know, people who, who knew exactly what needed to be done at, uh, at every stage of the game. Um, so uh, uh, I guess uh, I hope that answers your question. Uh, that, that's, that's, that's how we've done it so far. And uh, I hope that continues to work out. Yeah, well, me too. Um, so then, uh, 
do you, I forget the term. I, there's a term for this, but it's where like, you don't feel like you have enough, like you're not good enough to do something. Uh, Imposter syndrome. Thank you. What is this like? It's an obvious term. Do you still have, like you have the data of doing a good job. And I think that's like one of the ways I encourage people to like combat it when you're feeling that way. It's like, look at what you've done, but do you still have, do you, do you have imposter syndrome? Um, do you, if, if you have had it, uh, how do you combat it? I guess. You know, I, I I don't really suffer from imposter syndrome, I think, in the way that, uh, you, know, you know, people sort of diagnose it. Um, uh, but it's, it, it, I mean, it, I feel like, um, I feel like I need to have a realistic amount of, uh, of, um, of knowledge of my limitations that, that I need to, almost the opposite, that I need to constantly remind myself that, uh, that, that I don't know uh, everything and that I don't know enough, uh, you know, I was talking, you know, when, when we were hiring our, our head of, uh, our new head of, uh, of uh, clinical operations, uh, Noah Rosenberg, uh, the, me and my director of, uh, of biology, Daniel Clemens, were, were talking to each other. Uh, and, and to that point, him and I, two PhDs, were basically managing our clinical program. Like we were managing, uh, you know, writing of, a, of drafts of clinical trial protocols, you know, managing the, you know, everything that was going into the, um, the, uh, the, the regulatory uh, process, uh, and, you know, and proposing visions of, of clinical trials, you know, some of which you, you and I have discussed uh, today. And, you know, but as we were getting ready to hire this person, you know, Daniel turned to me and he said, you know, this is, this is a really good time that we're finally hiring somebody to take this job off of our hands because you and I have just, you know, we've learned just enough about clinical trial stuff to, to be dangerous and get ourselves in trouble. So it's, it, it's, it's a really good time that we get some, you know, a real seasoned professional in here to take over uh, the, the clinical trial uh, work and design uh, and management from us because, um, it's, uh, it's, you know, every, there, there, there's a lot to, to, to know and, and no one person can, uh, can know everything. So, um, you know, I think the first time a friend of mine who had a, an experimental treatment go into a patient, something like he was at the NIH and, uh, he, they, they, they had some kind of authority when somebody would come in with some um, rare orphan disease that there was just no treatment for that, you know, sometimes things would go straight from bench to a patient uh, at the National Institutes and Health. And, you know, he was a part of a project like that once and he was standing, he's a basic bench scientist like me, you know, with no clinical training. And he was standing next to a patient after a patient had gotten dosed with something that he'd invented at the, uh, you know, on the bench. And shaking his head and asking himself, like, "What the heck? Who who do I think I am? What what are, what are we doing here? Like, how could something that I invented get put into a person?" Um, but you know, for for people like us, it's also a dream come true that you know, uh, you're a biomedical researcher. You know, uh, you know, a lot of us work our entire careers and never have the opportunity to even take a shot at that. And it looks like, you know, I'm gonna have a chance to take my first shot at it soon. Uh, and it's just really exciting and a privilege. And, um, you know, I, I hope we get to do it uh, a whole lot more times and that it's extremely successful and, um, you know, that, uh, that we save, you know, millions or, or billions of lives. That's, that's what we're in it for. Mm -hmm. I think the interesting thing, another interesting thing is that you're, there's going to be a lot of people working with you as well. And it's going to be, you know, you're going to be fulfilling that dream as well for other people. Like it's not, 
like um you get to have the benefit of doing it but there's also everyone else who's going to be working with you who can also have that feeling that they've touched something in their lives that's special um you know that's a good point and to go back to your you know the earlier point you make about the visionary leadership and you know what kind of things do you do you talk to your people about and that is something that unites us and unites our team uh, is that uh, that everybody on our team is passionate about uh, about trying to uh, about trying to save lives uh, and, and not you know one life here one life there but can we intervene on the at the biggest disease in human history uh, cardiovascular disease kills more people than anything else uh, atherosclerosis kills approximately forty percent of everybody on earth uh, and wow. so you know you're not just talking about hundreds or thousands of lives you're talking about millions and even billions of lives over uh, uh, you know over years and so uh, you know, I gave a little speech at our holiday party last year, and I said, I want to become a billionaire, not by saving, not by, you know, getting a billion dollars, but by saving a billion lives. And, and that's awesome. what we're all here together working on. And, and I think that unites and, uh, and motivates our team uh, more than anything. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, everyone on the team will be a billionaire. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Everybody awesome. who's touched this, you know, from uh, the most junior team member, uh, you know, to, you know, consultants who've only spent an hour on this, uh, uh, everybody has, uh, you know, will have contributed to, to making this possible. And yeah, it's, it's, it's what gets us up in the morning. Sweet. And then uh, speaking about uh, taking an idea and executing it, I know we wanted to touch on like the actual, you know, manufacturing how, as you scale up. Imagine you went from like, R&D level to now you're getting ready for a clinical level. And then there's probably going to be a whole nother scale up when you, you know, you're uh, mass producing it. Um, what, what does that process look like? And we don't have to go like two in the weeds, but at the same time, no one ever really talks about this. No one really talks about like how that changes and, and uh, the thought process you have to go through and then that type of thing. Yeah. So um, it, it's, it's interesting. And uh you know, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll try not to get too deep into the weeds, but you're talking about going from, when you're talking about manufacturing stuff at the, um, at the conceptual level, at the drug discovery level, and then manufacturing at the production level, like at the market level, you're often talking about like two super, uh, two super order magnitudes of, of, of jump. So when we make um, a first prototype of one of our drugs, we make about a hundred milligrams of it. Uh, and, uh, and then if, uh, if it's something we like and it's, it's passing our, our first simple uh, tests, then we're making grams of the material. So you're talking about scaling it up from, you know, 10 to 100 times more than we were making in our first prototype. Uh, and that can take, you know, while the kind of chemistry they're using for it, it's a, it's a hugely different scale, you know, when you're making, you know, 10 or 100 times more than what you were making the first time. And then when you're going into safety testing and into people, now you're talking about kilograms. So now you're making another 100 or 1,000 times more than you were making before. And so when you, you make these leaps, uh, you know, most people, they, they don't get to see the, you know, the nitty gritty or the magic that happens, you know, between those steps that, it, you know, the, the kind of chemistry that you use 
uh, in the you know the first pass is probably going to be pretty different from the way it comes out at the end when it's all been optimized and uh, and simplified and, and made so that you can do at, at large quantity at high purity you know at the first stage you might not really care about purity very much uh, you don't care like uh, you know so much about impurities you know about you know low levels of toxins that uh, that, that are gonna you know hurt uh, people or something like that uh, but the you know later on the uh, the levels of purity that you need uh, and the scale is totally different so we go through these many stages uh, in the chemistry of where you know you start with the you know the discovery chemistry, and then you say, okay, um, you know, how can we make this a little bit more practical? So there's some process chemistry uh, that goes in, and then you're already thinking about, well, you know, could this scale to kilogram scale someday? So then you do a different kind of process chemistry to try to make it scalable, but you're still working at the gram scale. Then you, uh, then you know, once you get ready, you start doing. Um, uh, once you're, you know, moving into the the, uh, the later stages of development, you start making larger quantities of it. So you start doing practice runs of, you know, twenty or fifty or hundred grams um, using your your um, your more efficient process, uh, and then eventually you have to do a couple of practice runs making it at uh, kilogram scale level, and you have to be able to show at that step. This now you're starting to document things for the regulators, and so you you have like a carefully documented protocol, uh, and you do a lot of testing at the end where you test for, uh, you know, uh, dozens of different impurities uh, that you've gotten rid of all the starting materials, any uh, solvents that were used in the in the production that you get rid of all of those. Uh, you carefully document all of that, so you have a couple of practice runs that you need to show to the regulators. Uh, they're called engineering runs uh, at the kilogram scale uh, uh, that are very well documented. And then you go into the, the, um, the human quality material, which is GMP, uh, which just stands for good manufacturing practice. Uh, and uh, that uh, quality, that grade of material is what uh, will be decided uh, by the regulators if it is of the uh, if it's um, safe to put into people, and so uh, all drugs are GMP uh, grade material that get put into people in pharmaceuticals. So, uh, sorry that was kind of a long answer to your question, but that's that's how you go, and you know it's a multi-year process. Uh, the you know the first um, uh, version. Uh, of the the drug that we developed was five years ago in the you know when we were in the nonprofit before uh, we spun the company out and it's gone through many 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 uh, evolutions uh, of uh, chemistry since then. Do you do you make it in house? Like, is there like a wet lab somewhere oh, no. where you develop? No, okay, yeah, you got to go like Puerto Rico <laughs> no. or something. Um, and that's not uh, that's not universal for us. We outsourced all of our chemistry and we did that pretty early on and we did it intentionally. Uh, partly because, uh, you know, I'm a biologist and we're a biology lab. And also, I, I recognized pretty early on that this type of molecule, these cyclic carbohydrates called cyclodextrins that, um, that, that we use and that we've invented new uh, forms of, um, it's actually a whole kind of subspecialty of carbohydrate chemistry, that there are experts who spend decades only working on this kind of chemistry. So we didn't want to reinvent the wheel. We went straight to those experts and um, 
and started working with them and collaborating with them. So uh, we work on uh, we work on experts both on the uh, the physical chemistry of cyclodextrins and computational chemistry of cyclodextrins. Uh, so we work with the people who specialize in in doing computational modeling of this kind of unique molecule and with people who specialize in making them. Uh, and then the larger scale manufacturing then moved out to a different large scale manufacturer who's a more generic manufacturer that we taught the process to um, and that further refined the process and is making the uh, the drug for us. Makes sense. The, are, does, it, does it all happen in America or is it like a global thing? It's a global thing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. We have collaborators uh, for this in uh, in the U.S., uh, in Europe, uh, in uh, in Spain, in Hungary, uh, in wow. uh, and in Asia. So um, it's uh, it's a global thing. We we have and but it's it's also managed very tightly internally. So um, I'm on you know calls at. All times of uh, all times of the day with time zones that are completely different from my home time zone. Mm-hmm. I think that was one of the things that uh, one of the one of the bigger things that surprised me. When I started learning more about deep tech um, as like COVID happened. More people started doing global and tech uh, for or just in general, like for around the world. But for for deep tech involving uh, stuff like this, uh, when I would when I would ask people uh, these types of questions, I'd hear like, oh, there was there'd be like Jim in, from Germany, and he'd fly in every now and again, and we'd have giant meetings like. It, it it's really interesting to hear um how kind of like the 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 DTEP sectors were already very global and interconnected like taking the best of through the whole world to develop these things like um it's it's like uh it's like on the iss how like no matter where you're from like they're all scientists and they kind of like have that respect even if like the, the governments aren't getting along for I think sure that's, just like really that's a good analogy um scientists everywhere just love to talk to each other and love to talk uh, science and, uh, and and we all speak uh, that that language. Uh, so you're exactly right. Uh, and it, the, you know, you go to conferences and you meet with scientists all over the world, and uh, there's no um, there's no national boundaries when it comes to, to to science, to biology, to to biomedical research, or to pharmaceutical uh, work. Uh, and I think that's true for, uh, you know basically everyone everywhere. I mean, not everyone outsources to the same degree that we do. Some outsource even more than we do. Uh, and, you know, some outsource a lot less, but, uh, you know, everybody's working in a, in a huge global network these days. Is it the, is it your intention to keep it, um, a horizontal organization or do you see yourself eventually have a vertical integration? It might be like a, a years away, you know, problem. It could, you know, about. it's it's a little too early to make yeah. uh, decisions or predictions on that. But you know, I could see us doing, you know, having our own manufacturing line someday, depending on on how that goes. But uh, it, you know, we'll see what happens with with the drug, with the mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, with the clinical trials, how the the partnering for the development, uh, the later stage clinical trials, which are very big and expensive uh, and require partnerships with a lot of big institutions, um, how that will, will go. But uh, it, it's not ridiculous to, to actually, if you have a drug that becomes a blockbuster drug, uh, it, it's not ridiculous that, that uh, pharmaceutical companies end up building um, like manufacturing plants around 
a, you know, a particular drug. Like I, I read in a book about drug development, uh, about, uh, um, I, I think if I'm going to get the, uh, the details right uh, about a manufacturing plant in Ireland that was built to make Lipitor. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's, that's why it exists and it's specialized for that. Uh, so who knows, um, uh, that, that, that can happen. Yeah. yeah well, right hopefully now. it's a, yeah, hopefully it's a problem you get, you know, like, uh, you get to be a good problem to have someday. <laughs> yeah. Um, then, uh, so I, I, I know we're coming to the end. So, uh, what are, we just referenced a book. Um, what are some resources you recommend to people that want to learn more? Um, uh, if it can be specific to what you're working on, but I, I imagine, but just in general with longevity or just any book you're currently reading right now, uh, I have literally a stack of books. You can't see them all, but there's like 40 books to my left. So I'm always looking for more things to read. I've read most of them actually. Yeah. Let's see. Um, uh, I read uh, lifespan, uh, by David mm -hmm. Sinclair recently, which is really good. Um, I read, uh, the book by Andrew Steele called, um, ageless, if I have that right, um, which is phenomenal. Uh, I really recommend that to, to everyone. I really like the way that he uh, breaks things down, uh, and explains, uh, you know, the logic of why to, uh, look at aging, uh, broadly, uh, and, uh, uh, and how to go about it. Um, yeah, the book I was referencing just now is called, uh, there's two, there's uh, two books by the same author, uh, one called 10 Drugs and one called um, uh, Devil Under the Microscope. And the author um, I'm blanking on, uh, but uh, he's basically become my favorite uh, science author. Um, um, uh, it'll come to me. Uh, uh, and uh, I love the way that he explains things without uh, Thomas Haker. Uh, I, I love the way that he explains um, science, chemistry, and biology in a way that is digestible to ordinary people, but doesn't doesn't sacrifice um, doesn't sacrifice the uh, the uh, the integrity of the science in, in making it uncomprehensible, uh, is, is a real gift. Uh, so, uh, those are, those are some, uh, a few books that, uh, that I could recommend that I've read in the last uh, couple of years. There are three books I'll recommend to you. Um, I was trying to find it so I could like show you them, but there's the idea factory, which is like talks about like how bell labs worked out. I think that'd be interesting for you. Mm. Creativity yeah, Inc great. is creativity Inc, which is how, like how Pixar basically, uh, built like the managerial structure that allowed them to build such great movies, not build, make so, such great movies. And then there's work rules, um, which is like how to build a good team as well. I mean, all things are already doing really well, but I think you might get a kick out of them. Um, yeah, I, I love it. I appreciate it. I, I will, I've, I've heard of, uh, at least two of those and, um, I will look all three of those up and add them to my reading list. So I appreciate it. Sweet. I'll send them to you in a link as well. Um, what advice do you have for young people who want to get more involved in these types of things? Like if there's like a young person in college or someone out there who's really excited about longevity, this, this type of space, what, what advice would you have for them? There's so many different ways to contribute. Uh, you can become a, a biologist, uh, you know, whether you just get a, uh, you know, a bachelor's degree and go, you know, these days biology and chemistry is so hot that you can, you know, you can enter with a bachelor's degree and, and have a good 
uh, uh, career path. Uh, it hasn't always been that way, um, you know, or you can go and get a master's or, or a PhD. Uh, um, and, you know, you, you certainly have uh, some, uh, you know, you know, the, the additional training uh, can, it can be, you know, really beneficial. Uh, but, you know, there's uh, um, opportunities for people, uh, you know, business with business degrees uh, to get involved in, in biomedical, you know, especially the aging space is what I'm passionate about, uh, you know, investors, um, there's ways for, you know, whether you're, you know, somebody contributing small amounts of money to nonprofit uh, organizations uh, that, that focus on aging, uh, aging research, uh, I, you know, encourage you to, to do so. Uh, you know, whether you're a small donor and, you know, you're going to give like $10 here, $10 there, or, you know, you're um, a billionaire and you can give, uh, you know, millions or, uh, you know, billions of dollars. Uh, there's lots of ways to contribute, uh, you know, in some of those uh, nonprofits you can, um, uh, you can uh, get involved as volunteers with. Uh, and there's, uh, there's, you know, some people uh, trying to develop a fellowship um, programs where they're trying to bring more people into aging research from different fields, people from computer programming uh, and such like that. So uh, there, there's some interesting stuff that's coming on from, there's uh, uh, two organizations that, uh, that I've done some volunteering for in the past year, one called um, the Undeck Longevity Biotech Program uh, and another uh, called Less Death that uh, are gonna be doing some uh, some work together in the not too distant future um, that have already done great work uh, bringing more people to the field uh, that uh, if you Google those organizations, um, I think uh, you'll, you'll get some resources and you can try to um, get involved in one of their programs, one of their educational programs, uh, if, you're, if you're looking to get involved, whether you're a young person or, or you know, you're um, well-established uh, professional looking to um, find ways to more ways to contribute and, and get involved. Sweet. And those will be in the show notes as well. Um, so a disclaimer for this question, because I think you have to, like, this is not to give recommendations to other people, but I am curious, is there anything you're doing to help with your longevity uh, with your aging? And this is like, anything you say, people cannot, you know, uh, anything to you. I'm just kind of curious what, if you're doing anything, like with all the stuff you hear, is there anything uh, worth doing that helps out with aging that you do? Well, um, I'll just say that uh, I'm very, uh, I'm very pro longevity, and uh, I want to live a very long and healthy life. Uh, and so I'm, uh, I'm pretty aggressive about minding my health and, uh, and, uh, you know, my, my diet and exercise. And so I practice intermittent fasting. Uh, and, uh, and I do uh, interval training. Uh, there's a lot of good research on those. And um, uh, I think there's some, uh, some good, you know, there may be, you know, you mentioned a, uh, uh, you know, drug for um, diabetes uh, earlier that uh, may be good for, uh, for aging that uh, people might want to take a look at and see if it's right for them. And uh, other, there's other things like that, that, uh, that people can look at. So I think there's a lot of exciting things to look at when it comes to uh, things like metformin, rapamycin. Uh, and um, I, you know, I'm keeping a close eye on senolytics. I, I think stuff uh, could be really exciting there. Um, and uh, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll defer my answer on, on, on what I'm actually, uh, of those I, I may or may not be uh, testing on myself. And just say that there's there's a lot of cool stuff in the pipeline, and I'm uh, 
uh, I'm excited to see how, how all of this plan uh, pans out because uh, I think we live in a real inflection point in uh, in history. Yeah, I think this is the the century of biotechnology. Like we're like the last one was uh, the information age. I think this is the bio age. Um, I agree. Yeah, is there is there anything that people like you think it's not like I don't know how to phrase this question, but it's like it's not what people get wrong, but you think maybe people are paying a little bit too much attention to and maybe get like lost in the weeds in the sense of it's kind of like fad diets, but for longevity in the sense of uh, as a concept, is there anything that is in this space that you think people should kind of stay away from? Um, nothing's coming to mind without yeah. maybe some examples, but I feel like people get a little too caught up in extremism of, um, of different kinds of diet, of, you know, the uh, fighting about, uh, you know, carbohydrates versus fats versus proteins and, um, uh, and that kind of thing. It's, there's, I hope that with the, the revolution that we're having right now, that there'll be enough um, biomarkers that we can start making, you know, that the only honest answer that I think anybody can honestly say that there's good enough data on is that so far, nobody's been able to prove that there's a diet that's better than like the Mediterranean diet that's, um, it, you know, relatively, you know, low on, on junk food and, you know, low on refined um carbohydrates and, uh, you know, has enough, uh, protein and not too much, um, uh, um, uh, saturated fats or something like that. But I, you know, that's going to be far from the last word and it's far from the last word on, on what will work for individual people. So that may be, and I think it's very likely that, that diets need to be individualized, but that we can't really understand that yet without better testing of, you know, what diet agrees with your metabolism best. Uh, so, uh, but I think that the, the fights between people who are like, no, like veganism, no, like carnivore, no, uh, you know, it has to be, uh, you know, this uh, fasting diet, no, this, like, I mean, people are like voraciously like angry about this. And, um, you know, you're not going to reverse uh, uh, the, you know, aging with, with a diet. You're not going to treat... Um, you're not going to have a, you know, a heart that has necrotic damage that you're going to reverse with, uh, with a, with a certain kind of diet. Um, you're just not, you're not going to be able to, you know, replace, uh, uh, you know, stem cells that you need a stem cell treatment for, uh, with, with your diet. So, you know, I kind of wish people would turn the volume down on that a little bit and focus more on, you know, mechanisms of aging and can we target, you know, root causes of aging through, uh, you know, through interventions, uh, you know, through, you know, mostly I think in the future pharmaceutical interventions and, and stop fighting about, you know, whose favorite diet and whether or not we should be eating lactose and stuff like that. Is there a, a stem cell related, cause I'm about to do a bunch of, like a series on stem cells. Is there an av- is there an avenue in st- uh, with stem cells that relates to uh, longevity that you'd recommend people check out? Um, you know, it's, it's this thing where, uh, stem cells have been, you know, right on the cusp of fulfilling their potential for, uh, you know, almost a couple of decades now. And we, we haven't quite gotten there yet. 
Um, I guess some of the most exciting stuff for me has been seeing the, the, the cautionary success in treating Parkinson's disease uh, with, uh, with stem cells that, uh, you know, hopefully as that pans out, that hopefully that starts to gain traction, that it becomes finally a real uh, treatment for Parkinson's disease that can actually reverse disease and hopefully uh, spreads from there into, you know, more diseases, uh, you know, in the brain and, and elsewhere. I think that's maybe some of the most promising stuff that I've seen, not being an expert uh, on that, uh, I'd say that that in terms of transplants, uh, that's maybe some of the most promising stuff that, that I'm excited about. Sweet. Um, how do you stay up? Like, this is like, I think going to be our last question. Um, how do you, are you like, are you just like have Google scholar alerts? Like how are you staying on the cutting edge? Like, how do you, you know, how do you, I imagine maybe you just have like a bunch of friends, you guys sit around at a fire and, you know, keep each other. Like, this is some cool stuff I went up to, but like, how are you staying on the cutting edge of these, uh, these different interdisciplinary fields? It's hard. Uh, and all, all of those things that you mentioned, I'm on, you know, multiple email lists on, uh, you know, I'll read the, the you know, table of contents of, you know, particular journals, uh, you know, I'll read books, uh, you, you know, at the, you know, sort of the, the you know, biggest level, you know, you get stuff at books and at the finest team level, uh, you know, you, you want to be reading primary literature. So for somebody like me, I need to be reading primary literature and secondary literature, which means like review uh, articles of the, you know, primary research articles. Uh, and so I watch, uh, you know, the, the email lists that I'm on. I watch the, the social media, um, you know, things that I follow. I really carefully sort of curate my, my social media feeds so that there's not, there's not a lot of junk. There's not a lot of you know, distracting stuff. There's not a lot about, um, you know, politics and such that I'm, that I'm not interested in. Uh, you know, my friends on, you know, Facebook and LinkedIn are, are you know, people who, who don't post a lot of annoying stuff. They're really smart people who post, uh, you know, really important stuff. And so I'll see stuff, you know, when it breaks, uh, you know, when they post it, people write me stuff uh, that they think, you know, I have random people who are interested in the kind of chemistry, you know, the kind of pharmaceutical that I'm interested in reach out to me um, you know, LinkedIn or, you know, cold call me on email and say, hey, did you hear about this study yet? Um, and a lot of times I have, you know, sometimes I'll get, you know, the same thing sent to me like five times, but I actually never discourage people from doing that because I often find out about stuff from that kind of network before I come across it from, you know, my own searches of the, uh, the medical literature or like the, the, um, uh, like the PubMed alerts or the Google Scholar alerts, like you're talking about that I have set up, patent alerts uh, I have set up, you know, people who are publishing patents. That's something that a lot of people miss uh, in research is, uh, is stuff that gets published in patents sometimes before it gets published in the peer-reviewed literature. Uh, so all those places, it's, it's hard. You can never keep up. You, you just, you can't keep up with everything, uh, but you have to keep up with as, as much as you can uh, in your field. And then, you know, in, in circles around your field so that you can stay on top of what you could be interfacing with. How do you have patent alerts? Is there like a, how do you do that? I've never heard of this before, like patent alerts. I've heard like Google Scholar alerts. Yeah, there's, like a, there's a Google um, patent uh, site and there's okay. government patent um, uh, sites. So I, you know, I think it's like patents.google.com okay. or something like that. Uh, and, uh, and you can sign up for alerts there. And then there's, um, there's a government sponsored site that just changed. And so don't ask me to, to name it, but the government patent office, uh, has a pretty nice one also. 
Uh, so yeah, that's that's how you do it, and you can you you can do searches manually just like you can on Google or on PubMed, uh, and you can um, you can set up uh, uh, search alerts. Is there? Do you guys are you guys putting out a newsletter? Like, what's the best way to stay up with what you're doing? Follow us on social media, Cyclarity uh, Therapeutics on Facebook, on Twitter, and on um, uh, on our website and uh, and on uh, LinkedIn. Uh, so Cyclarity TX, so TX is short for therapeutics, cyclaritytx.com, uh, Cyclarity Therapeutics on Facebook and LinkedIn and uh, uh, and on uh, on Twitter. Okay, and then um, trying to- And formerly we, we were uh, Underdog uh, Pharmaceuticals. So Underdog Pharmaceuticals is now Cyclarity Therapeutics. Is there uh, anything we missed in this conversation that you think that we should hit on before we, we wrap up or do we get everything? Uh, I think uh, we've, uh, we've, we've, we've covered a lot Lowell, uh, and uh, it's, it's been a lot of fun. It's been fun talking about, uh, about aging, about pharmaceutical development and uh, where uh, Cyclarity is heading with, uh, with our drug development. Thank you for joining us today with the Learn With Lowell show. Check us out at learnwithlowell.com. Anywhere podcasts can be found, subscribe, tell me what you thought of this episode. Check us out on YouTube in particular. It's a new thing I'm doing. Uh, Timestamps and links are in the show notes. Thank you for coming. And I hope everyone, every one of you found something today that you're curious about to learn more about. And you'll go out and be curious and learn something new. Thank you and have a great rest of your day.